Well, hey, it's really good to be back. Uh, I just want to start out by just thanking you guys for praying for us while we were in India. And, uh, and just beg you to please continue. There's such a desperate need for the gospel in India. And um, we were glad to be a small part of it. But please keep praying. Keep praying for them. Um, yeah, it was a great time, wasn't it? I mean, just to the, the thing that I love most about going overseas to do mission work is because you gather together with people from every tongue, every tribe, and every nation. And you're unified in the gospel, in the gospel mission. And you get to go out and share that with other people. I mean, it's a small glimpse of heaven. I mean, you're just going to have to talk to us. Talk to Quinn, talk to Joe. If you see Justin, talk to Justin, talk to me. We could tell you thousands and thousands of stories about what had happened there and the way that God had moved and how God had provided uh, opportunities and how he'd been there in the right place at the right time to provide correction where it needed to be. It just all sorts of stories. It was just an amazing, amazing thing. But one of the things that happened to me that I was actually a little shocked by, pleasantly shocked, but uh, was that though God was using us there, though we were being faithful to share the gospel, at least I think we could safely say 300 people heard the gospel that had not heard it before. One of, we, were, we went to one village where we were the first foreigners they'd ever seen. You know, so it was pretty cool. Um, but though God was using us there, though we were being faithful there, my mind and my heart was drawn back here. Even though I was, I was there, the droid was not there. <laughs> Long pause. Let's get it together. <laughs> droid. It's awesome. Um, though uh, I don't even know what, what was I talking about. <laughs> Your heart was still here. My heart was still here. Yes, that's it. I was. My heart was still here. Like, I mean, India will always have a piece of my heart. My affections will always be drawn there. I will think about those people. I will pray for those people. Gosh, we have great relationships with the people that that we've served along, fellow believers. It was amazing. But I, I came to realize that though it was, in some ways, really exciting. Well, it was really exciting to be over there to be used in that way. God had me here. My affections, my longing, was for here. And though you all might have been out of sight, I hope you know that you were never out of my mind. I love serving here. It's a privilege to be here. Yeah, we're small. Yeah, it's hard. Yeah, we're just getting started. Yeah, it's a lot tougher to share the gospel here than it is over there. But you know what? This is it. You know? Um... And so it's been really cool as we've been going through First Thessalonians this time that perhaps I think it's probably I can safely say this is the first time I've ever studied First Thessalonians and I've studied First Thessalonians a lot, but the first time I've been able to study it and to know and to experience Paul's affections in what he was saying. This is the first time that I've really been able to experientially understand Paul's heart. 
to understand His love, His longing for, and His commitment to a body. And it's been great. It's been, it's been amazing to see His commitment come out and how that strengthened mine. And maybe it's because for the first time I'm a church planter like Paul. But it's been, it's been an amazing blessing. And that's really what I want to talk to you about today. Uh, we're going to be going through... Do you have this? There we go. Um, we're going to be looking today at, at, at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 17 through 3-5. Now, do not be afraid there. I know that when you kind of cross chapters, you get really scared. Oh, that's a lot. That is only eight verses, so you don't need to freak out about that. We'll, we'll be able to, to uh, easily get through all this. Uh, but today, as we look at this passage, we're going to see that Paul is explaining that though he was torn away from the Thessalonians, he had this deep longing to return to them. Though he was forced to leave, he was deeply concerned for them, and he was willing to endeavor and to sacrifice for their good and for his joy. So with that, let's take a look at the passage so we can under- seek to understand the heart of of a faithful pastor. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 17. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, but not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face, because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before the Lord Jesus at His coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions." For you yourselves know that we were destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we would suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass, and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you, and our labor would be in vain. The first truth we see here from this text is that faithful pastors endeavor. Faithful pastors endeavor. Paul himself endeavored. We know from Romans 15 that he made it his ambition to preach the gospel where Christ had not already been named. He labored. He struggled. He pursued his mission. And his mission had led him to this Macedonian city of Thessalonica. Now we need to It's been a couple of weeks since we looked at it, so I want us to jump back and think about the context. If we look at Acts 17, we get uh, the historical account of Paul's time in Thessalonica. Apparently, Paul had only been there for a few weeks, a few short weeks, and he spent most of his time reasoning in the synagogues. He was arguing that Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, was the Christ, and he did so from Scripture. And we know from verse 10 that some of the Jews, along with many devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women, were convinced that this resurrected Jesus was the Messiah that they had been longing for. But there were another, a great number of Jews who were jealous and they stood in opposition to Paul. 
He says they formed a mob and they set the entire city in an uproar. The situation was so bad that in in Acts 17 verse 10, it says that the brothers, and it's interesting that it says the brothers, these are the, the Thessalonians that had received the gospel, the brothers, they thought it best to immediately send Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. These young Christians thought it in the best interest of everyone that Paul leave Thessalonica. And so Paul made the painful choice to consent to leave this young, beloved congregation. Paul wants to make it clear to the Thessalonians that he was not ducking and running away. He wasn't seeking to save his own skin. He wasn't abandoning his mission, nor them. He says that he was torn away from them. This word used here means to be orphaned, to be painfully ripped away from your loved ones. Now, I don't know if you've ever experienced being separated from your parents as a young child. Maybe you got lost in an amusement park or something like that. Or maybe as parents, you've experienced being separated from your children and not knowing where they were. If that's the case, then you know how Paul felt. You know, when I was little, from the time I was born until I was about four years old, my dad was an iron worker. So he would have to go and be gone for weeks at a time to do his job. And he would come back on the weekends and then he'd turn around and go again. And I remember every time, some of my earliest memories were of my dad like having to leave and how much I hated that. Every time I felt like I was losing my dad. You know, he was just going, he was going, he was going. On this trip, when we went to India, uh, Gabe had a really hard time. He didn't want to be away from his daddy. And and Phyllis, she keeps texting me, though sometimes I wish that she didn't because it was really hard. But, uh, you know, she was talking about one night he was sick. He had had 103 uh, fever, and he was was late, he was exhausted, he was on the potty with some diarrhea, and he was just throwing his head back crying. You know, just wanting his daddy. Where was his daddy? His daddy was lost. His daddy was dead. And and he, you know, and and I understood that really, really resounded with me because I could remember back to when I was young and having to say goodbye to my father, over and over. And and that that intense feeling of losing somebody. That's how Paul felt. He felt that he had been torn away from his children, and they he considers them his children in the faith. Paul recognizes that when he preaches the gospel to them, he now has a commitment to them to grow them to maturity in Christ, and he wants to be there. He wants to be there for them and to make sure that they're cared for and protected, and he feels as though the situation resulted in him being ripped away from them. And it's plagued him. He's deeply moved by that. And he wants them to know that his departure did not result in him just forgetting about them as though he had hardened his heart and kind of moved on. Okay, next city, let's go. No, he wants them to know, hey, I love you guys. I care about you guys. I want to see you guys succeed and stand firm in the faith. And so he's committed to them. He longs for them. And his separation, which he considers to be temporary, resulted in him laboring eagerly to make his way back to them again. The text says that he endeavored the more eagerly with great desire to see them face to face. Because of his deep affection for them, 
Paul was determined. He, he was set to make his way back to them. And he wasn't going to let anything keep him from doing it. And as I was writing this, as I was thinking about this, I actually got this picture in my head of Paul sort of dressed in drag, singing, Ain't No Mountain High Enough, you know, just keep me from getting you, babe. But, uh, yeah, but, but Paul was determined to get there. He wasn't going to let anything stop him, not even Satan himself. He says in verse 18 that he wanted to come to them. Again, he had tried time and time and time again, but so far Satan had hindered him. It was Satan who kept him from making his way to them. We don't really know why. It could be because of this Jewish opposition that was sort of keeping him at bay. Or by the time he wrote this letter, he was probably in Corinth. And so maybe there were some sin issues that he was dealing with in Corinth. We know that that was a very troublesome and difficult church. Uh, Maybe it was... uh, this thorn in the flesh that we learn about from Second Corinthians, or maybe he was sick, or, or maybe it was a legal ban. See, more than likely in Acts 17, when Jason had to pay the opposition, more than likely the people of the city set up a, a legal ban preventing Paul from returning back to Thessalonica. So maybe that is what prevented him. We don't really know why, but, but what we do know What Paul is absolutely clear on is that he believes that the reason why he's not able to return to them is because Satan himself is at work hindering them. The word he used here is is of a military tactic in which an army destroys a road or a bridge, making that way completely impassable. And it's it's a fitting analogy when you think about spiritual warfare. Satan was using any means of blocking Paul's path from keeping him to return to Thessalonica. Whether you realize it or not, Satan is at war against God and against God's people. And he will use any means available to keep us from persevering in the faith. Any means necessary to keep us from advancing. And so I I just want to stop and kind of question you for a minute. Do you really believe that Satan is real and that Satan is at work? Do you really believe that? It's easy for us to kind of like, I know my my proclivity is to just kind of minimize it or to think, you know what, I'm victorious in Christ now, so I don't have to worry about that. And in fact, I kind of like balk almost at the idea that Satan might be at work in and against me as I'm going through uh, whatever I'm doing. But Paul, he wants to make sure... He wants to be absolutely clear on something. Satan is not some abstract spiritual superstition that he's trying to cast blame off onto. As though Paul's saying, well, I haven't been able to make it back to Thessalonica and I don't really have a good excuse, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to chalk it up to Satan because they're kind of, they're spiritual and superstitious and they'll buy into that. That's not his intention at all. Paul has seen Satan at work. Paul has seen Satan's activity. And he believed more than anybody in the reality of who Satan is and, and Satan's desire to hinder God's people, to keep them from obeying God's commands, to keep them from, from persevering in the faith. We know from 1 Peter 5.8 that Peter himself says that, the, that Satan is an adversary who prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And one of the ways that he often uses to destroy our faith is through affliction. I mean, remember Job 1. What was happening? 
Satan had been out throughout the world searching to and fro, and he makes his way to God. And eventually he asks to afflict Job for the purpose of getting Job to curse God and to deny his faith. We know from what we've gone through so far in 1 Thessalonians that persecution and affliction was really happening. That was the reason why Paul had to leave in the first place, and it was continuing on there. And Paul's concern is that he sees Satan at work afflicting and persecuting these people. And he wants to make sure that they're, they're standing firm. He's worried that these persecutions will result in them being tempted by the tempter to turn from their faith, and therefore his labor would be in vain. I know that we live in a day of, of anti-supernaturalism. We live in a day that only wants to focus on the material world. But we know inherently that that can't be true, that we live in a metaphysical world where there are, there are spirits at work in the world. I mean, look at yourself. You bear witness. Your, your very life bears witness to the fact that we do not live in simply a material world. You're not just an organic machine that goes through its course. You have real feelings. You have the ability to think, the ability to analyze. You have a heart and a mind to respond. You, that's your soul. So our lives give evidence in and of itself that we're not just material, that there's something more, that there's something spiritual, very real and very present, very tangible, because we have the ability to think. I mean, this is where Descartes you know, kind of came in handy right there. You know, I think, therefore, I am. Well, that gives evidence of the fact that there is a soul. Now, he comes to wrong conclusions with that. But, nevertheless, this is true and it's at work. And, and we have to realize that there are spiritual powers at work on our souls, either for good or for ill. Satan is real, and he will do anything that he can to attack your soul. His goal is to hinder God's work to hinder your faith. And one of the biggest lies that we can buy into is that we are individuals, that we are, we are all on our own, that our faith is, is between us and, and Christ. You realize that when we say that, we're giving Satan a foothold because that's not how God designed it. God designed us to help one another in persevering in the faith. This is why Paul wants to go back and get there to help them so that they will not be tempted by the tempter. It's not that he is all that great, but he realizes the significance of the church in helping one another to persevere. And we need to recognize that Satan is real and Satan is at work, and we need one another if we are to stand the fight of faith so that we might not be hardened by our own sin and to walk away altogether. That's exactly what Satan wants. If nothing else, let it be for the glory of God and for the good of others that you invest yourself in the church. Because it's for the God's glory because He designed the church. It's for the good of others because you can be a means of helping one another persevere in the faith. And if that's not reason enough, verses 19 through 20 says that Paul was motivated in the pursuit of his own glory and his own joy. He says the reason why he longed for them and he endeavored against Satan's devices was so that he might see them again and his, for his own glory and his own joy. He says, 
For what is our hope or our joy or our crown of boasting before the Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. A faithful pastor endeavors for his congregation for his own glory and joy. He realizes that his crown for boasting before God at the return of Jesus Christ is found in his congregation, in the believers. They are his reward for his faithful service in ministry. Not because they followed Paul, because they bought into Paul's message, because they thought Paul was a cool guy or whatever, just influenced into following him, but because their lives have been completely changed by Christ. They give joyful evidence that Paul's labors in sharing the gospel were not in vain, not because of his persuasive words, but because the Spirit of God was at work through him to impart life to others. This is an amazing thing. This is what fuels you as a pastor. Not to bring glory to yourself and like, look at me and what I have done. Look, all these people here, they've bought into my message. No. The real glory, the real joy comes in, I'm serving faithfully in sharing the gospel. And as I sow the seed of God's word into these people, God does something and I bear witness to it. It's happening right in front of me. And it's an amazing thing. And the result is you rejoice and you want more and more and more of it. That's the goal for ministry. Not bringing glory to yourself in a man-centered way, but to be able to bear witness to people finding their joy in Christ and that resulting in you having more joy in Christ. A good example of this, again, is, is in having children. When you have a kid, you don't rejoice in the fact that, hey, that's my seed, you know. As great as the act of intercourse is, I mean, this is a glorious thing. We don't look, when we hold your child for the first time, you don't look like, man, I did good, you know. You just like, you don't sit there and say, I remember nine months ago, bada bing, bada boom, look at this. You know, that's not why you take joy. That's not why you glory. You know, you, you celebrate because you got to participate in a miracle. You got to participate in God's work in imparting new life. And it's a glorious thing. Every time I've held my kids for the first time, I've never, ever, ever thought to myself, man, I did a good job. But just thank you, Lord, that I got to participate in this. And that as a result of what you have done using, using us in these small ways, Phyllis in a much more large way than me, but that, that you've done this miracle. You've given life. Ministry is the same way, or ministry should be the same way. It's not about nickels and numbers. It's about seeing God impart life. As you have done your small, insignificant part of sowing your seeds, sowing the Word of God, being faithful to the Gospel, God imparts new life through His Spirit. And it transforms, it changes, and you, you just stand back in awe and marvel at what God is doing. As you go and you tell people, this is an amazing thing. It's in foolishness that it happens, right? The Gospel is foolishness to the world. I mean, you think about it. I get up here or I meet with you over coffee, or you come to a community group, or whatever the situation is, and I say, hey, you know what? You're a sinner. You're in rebellion to God. By nature, that's what you are. 
We each try to live as if this is our world and we're God. And we, we reject the reason we were created. We reject that purpose. And in so doing, we commit sins. And sins give evidence to the fact that we are, are rebels against God. We don't want what he wants, even though it's for our best, even though it's for our glory. We want our own thing. And as a result of that, we have brought on ourselves the wrath of God. So guess what, buddy? You're under the wrath of God. And because God is a holy, infinite, eternal God, that wrath is going to be against you for all eternity. Unless you turn, unless you find a way to reconcile yourself to God, you are under the wrath of God for eternity to be punished, to be separated from God. But here's some good news. God sent His Son into the form of a baby born in a manger. The Son, Jesus Christ, lived the life that you cannot And He gave that life up for sin like yours. He substituted Himself for sin. He paid the ransom, the penalty that you're, the, the, of God's wrath, the wrath that you deserve on your behalf. And after three days of being dead in a grave, He rose again. He was given new life. And that proved that God's wrath against sin was satisfied. It proved that He was the Son of God. It proved that He will judge every single person for their lives whether they have continued in rebellion against Him or whether they have come to Him and sought mercy and sought their salvation in Him, in His completed work. And that's what you're left with. You've got two options. You can believe in Him and be saved. You can trust in Him, repent of your sin, and follow after Him in faith as your Lord and Savior, or you can continue in rebellion. But you will stand before the judgment seat of God. And your only hope of salvation is in nothing that you can do. All your righteousness will not fail. Will fail. It will not succeed. You only have His righteousness to lean on. That's a foolish message. And that's what I get to get up and preach. <laughs> and I love it. You know, it's, it's great. Because that makes no sense to us. But when somebody accepts it, when somebody believes, that's the work of God in their life. I can't make somebody believe that. I cannot paint that picture in such a beautiful way that people will, by their own nature, accept it. They will always reject it. And so when they accept it, we can say, this is the glory of God. This is God giving new life. And it is an amazing thing. And it should fuel us. It should motivate us. And it should be our glory and our joy. When we stand before Christ and we have our trophy of boasting, again, we don't say, look at what I have done. Look at what I have done. When we stand before God and we boast, we're going to be saying this. Look at what you've done. God, you have done this. Thank you for letting me participate in this. Praise you for what you have done. That's our reason for boasting. Not that we boast in ourselves, but we boast in the completed work of Christ and what He has done in the lives of so many people around us. And as the Thessalonians, as they had joy in Christ, it caused Paul to have even more joy in Christ. Again, this is the privilege of a pastor. As you guys find more and more and more of your satisfaction in Christ, I... Receive joy 
in, in, in Christ. Christ is magnified all the more in my life because I can look at you and say, wow, look at, look at what's happening here. This is an amazing thing. Now, you can't talk about glory and joy in a sermon without quoting John Piper. It's kind of a requirement. If you are, are oblivious to this fact, you need to be made aware of John Piper. You need to read some John Piper, some good stuff. But he talks a lot about finding your soul satisfaction, your joy in Christ, and how that's a motivator. He calls it Christian hedonism. Uh, but in his book, Desiring God, which if you're going to read one book by John Piper, this is the one to read. Piper says this regarding this passage that we're looking at. He says that the church was Paul's joy because in their joy in Christ, his joy in Christ was greater. Again, as they magnified Christ in their joy, he is now a, a participant in and a recipient of, and his joy is magnified all the more. The more, more of Christ's mercy was magnified in multiplied converts to the cross. This is why we do evangelism. This is our selfish means of wanting to do evangelism. So Paul chose in suffering that the cause of world evangelization and said that his aim was to gain Christ. He meant that his own personal enjoyment of fellowship with Christ would be eternally greater because of the great assembly of redeemed enjoying Christ with him. That's his glory. He's saying that the more and more they take joy in Christ, the greater his eternal joy in, in fellowship with Christ would be because they were enjoying Christ together. That's a motivation for a pastor. That's what he endeavors to do. And so a pastor faithfully endeavors to see more and more people find their joy in Christ. So as he does that, he also endeavors to maximize his own glory and joy in Christ. These are not, it's not a selfish thing, and these are not, it's not a dichotomy, right? They go hand in hand. He's seeking God's glory, he's seeking their good, and he's seeking his own joy, his own satisfaction in Christ. So according to 1 Thessalonians 2, 17 through 20, faithful pastors endeavor in loving and longing for their congregation as they stand against Satan's devices in order to seek their own glory and joy in Christ. And because this is their endeavor, 1 Thessalonians 3, 1 through 5 says that faithful pastors sacrifice. Let's look again at the text. You look at chapter 3, 1-5. through five. It says, Therefore, when, I could, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith, that no one may be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass, and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you, and that our labor would be in vain. Paul proves himself to be a faithful, sacrificial pastor, and then he's willing to suffer discomfort, he's willing to embrace afflictions, and he's willing to face his fears in order to protect his labor. 
verses 1 through 3 tell us of Paul's willingness to suffer discomfort. We see it in that he, along with Silvanus and Timothy, decided that it was better that he go on to Athens alone so that Silvanus and Timothy could encourage the believers in Berea and Thessalonica. And again, if you look back at Acts 17, you know that when they were torn away from Thessalonica, they made their way to Berea. And again, they only had a few short weeks there, but it was, going to be, it was turning out to be a very fruitful ministry. A number of Jews, and a vast number of Greeks, and a, a number of, of these um, elite women were coming to know Christ. But again, Jewish opposition from Thessalonica followed them into Berea. And it resulted in the same thing, that the brothers required that he leave immediately and move on. And so what had happened there was, was Paul made his way onto Athens alone, and Silvanus and Timothy stayed behind in, a, in Berea to encourage the believers with the intention that Timothy would make his way back to Thessalonica to encourage, to exhort uh, the believers there so that they might stand firm in the faith and that both of them would end up making their way to meet up with Paul either in Athens or what it turned out to be in Corinth. And so that was their plan. Um, Paul was willing to sacrifice himself, his own comfort, to be left alone in order to see this fledgling congregation be strengthened. And this is a big deal. Paul is left without his trusted companions, his brothers, his fellow co-workers in the gospel. He's in a strange place, in the midst of a strange culture, around a strange people that spoke a very strange tongue. He didn't know where he was, and he was without the protection that he would have had traveling in a group, which in that day meant a lot of danger. He also wouldn't have had the same sort of resources, because together they had all the resources pulled together, but I'm sure that when he left them behind, he also gave them money so that their needs would be provided for, leaving him with less. So here he is in a strange place, in a dangerous place, with fewer resources than he had before. And he did this all in the name of seeing these young believers strengthened in the faith. He's willing to, to face that kind of, of situation. He's willing to face that kind of discomfort. I don't know if, uh, if you've ever traveled to a different culture uh, yourself, but it's never a really comfortable venture. Okay? Um, the first time I went to India, uh, my friend Tom and I, we were... Uh, we went out on this evangelism trip. We went with Ani. We went to Ani's area, and we had you know we'd go over there by train. But when we when it came time for us to leave, Tom and I had to buy a ticket, board a train, get back to Kolkata, and find our way back to the hotel. And this is again, this is the first time that I'd been there, and I wasn't aware. Like I had no idea where I was going. I mean, this last time I kind of had a few of the major you know, streets and kind of had some boundaries that I knew how to work in and so we wouldn't get lost. We just, we might have to walk a while, but we weren't going to get lost. That time I didn't have anything. And to top it off, if you ride a train in India, they never announce what the stops are. So you're crowded into these trains and you have basically enough time to jump off at your stop before the train takes off again and you've got to be able to really read Bengali or just be happen to see the one sign where it's written in English as to what it is. You know? And on top of that, we only had enough money to really find to get a taxi driver to drive us to the hotel if he knew exactly where he was going. Okay? We had two pieces of information that were helpful. One, 
we knew that the train would dead end at our stop, which was a good thing. That means we didn't have to stop along the way. Basically, when the train came to a halt and never started again, that's when we knew to get off. So we had that, and we also had a wadded-up piece of paper with the address of the hotel, which was completely useless because the hotel was located in an alleyway that you couldn't even pronounce, let alone find, on any kind of map. And, and no taxi driver under their, in their right mind would even know. I mean, taxi drivers there don't even know street names anyway. You've got you've to give them uh, landmarks, like, you know, this church is there, or you know, this temple, or this uh, this mosque, or you know, some sort of landmark so that they can find it. You know, so of course we go and we had to haggle to try to get a a, uh, a taxi driver that would take the amount of money that we had, which was a chore in of itself. And of course, this dude had no idea where he was going. You know, eventually we made our way back, but in a city of 15 million people where they speak a lot of different languages. It was a very uncomfortable situation. I couldn't imagine being Paul, going into Athens alone. You know, I tried, I tried to imagine going into Kolkata, a city of 15 million people, not knowing where I was going, not knowing any of the landmarks, kind of walking in and having to find a place to live, trying to find a means of sustaining myself and to exist there for months by myself until I could be reunited with my friends. It would be lonely it would be uncomfortable. It would be dangerous. I just a miserable, miserable situation. But Paul did it, and he was willing to do it again for the good of these young believers to make sure that they had the the pastor there to encourage them in the faith the way they needed to be encouraged. And his loneliness would have been overwhelming. I mean, think about it too. Timothy, he calls Timothy his son, his beloved child in the faith. We know from First and Second Timothy that Paul received a lot of comfort from Timothy. He loved him, and he wanted to be around him. And he was willing, again, to let Timothy go into a dangerous place by himself. Which, you know, I know Timothy's a grown adult or whatever, but I'm not going to let my kid, even if he's a grown adult, go into a place where it's dangerous, you know, while I go over here, and we'll, we'll hopefully, Lord willing, meet up somewhere in Athens in six months, and we'll see how that goes. Uh, I couldn't even imagine doing that. But Paul was willing to suffer discomfort and to be separated from Timothy in order to help these believers persevere. You know, like Paul, faithful pastors have to be willing to suffer discomfort in order to seek the good of their congregation. We saw a few weeks ago how Paul loved the Thessalonians sacrificially, and he was willing to work night and day so that he would not be a burden to them while he was there. Faithful pastors put others before themselves. Like a good shepherd, they are willing to put themselves in harm's way for the good of their sheep. And so they are willing to suffer discomfort, but also, according to verses 3 and 4, they're willing to embrace afflictions. Paul says, you yourselves know that we were destined for this. When we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. You know, a lot of times we think of ministry as some sort of elevated or exalted position. 
that these guys are somehow 10 foot tall and bulletproof. They're, not, you know, they're invincible. Or we treat them as like the general who's safely upon the hill as the battle rages below in the valley. And that couldn't be farther from the truth. No, to embrace ministry is to embrace affliction. To be a minister is to be a servant. According to Jesus, to be last of all, to be a slave of all. To be a minister is really to paint a big bullseye on your target, a bullseye target on your chest and say, look at me, here I am, come and get me. I can tell you firsthand in this last year, I have experienced more spiritual suffering and attacks than I had ever in my entire life. This is not an easy thing. You're making yourself a servant. You're, you're embracing the ministry is embracing affliction. You know, Paul was told three days after his dramatic conversion on the road to Damascus of how much he would suffer for the sake of Jesus' name. If you read 1 Peter, which is all about suffering, in 1 Peter 4, Peter's warning the believers of the likelihood of their suffering and he commends them to suffer according to God's will by entrusting their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. And then in chapter 5, he immediately turns and he looks at elders and he says, guess what, you better be ready because they're coming for you first. That's the reality of it. To take on the, the, the exalted position is to take on the suffering. You not only have to deal with the fiery darts of the evil one, but you also experience volleys from the unbelieving world. And oftentimes, worse than that, friendly fire from those that are closest to you. You paint a big target on your chest. There is a cost of discipleship for all believers, but especially for those who are called into ministry. And like Paul, we must realize that to one degree or another, we're destined for this. We're destined to be afflicted. But a faithful pastor will embrace afflictions because they realize that the goal of this life is to not maximize comfort and minimize pain in this world, but it is to minimize our pain in eternity and to maximize our comfort in Christ. And I want to say that again because that really applies to all of us. We embrace affliction realizing that the goal in this life is not to maximize comfort and minimize pain in this world, but to maximize our, or minimize our pain in eternity and maximize our comfort in Christ. So a faithful pastor, sacri- uh, so faithful pastor sacrificed by being willing to suffer discomfort by embracing suffering, and by being willing to face fears in order to protect their labor. In verse 5 he says, For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. He says, Because he was afraid that these afflictions would result in their faltering, And because he could not bear the unknown any longer, Paul was willing to face the discomfort and embrace additional affliction so that he might ensure that they had not been tempted by Satan, the tempter, and that his ministry would have been for nothing. In ministry, ignorance is not bliss. Sometimes we think, okay, if I just don't know what's going on in the lives of my congregation, it'll just be okay. Well, 
que sera, sera, whatever will be, will be, does not apply to ministry. We can't just shrug our shoulders and, and, and you know, trust God. That's not ever what we're to do. We need to ensure that our congregation does not falter, but rather perseveres towards Christ's likeness. I mean, for Paul, it is incomprehensible for a servant of Christ to care less about the souls of his flock. In fact, we see here in this text, Paul seemingly to condone a godly anxiety towards the Thessalonians. I mean, he loves them. He cares for them as his own children. He, he's moved deeply and he's fearful for their protection and their preservation. He couldn't, he couldn't stand not knowing how they were doing. And he knows that Satan, the tempter, is at work. And so he, he, he sends his friends on ahead. He can't stand to not know whether or not they're doing okay. Trusting in God does not mean that we sit by idly and shrug our shoulders so that we might leave it in the hands of God. That's not trusting in the Lord. That's apathy. That's, that's lack of compassion. That's lack of love. That's anything but what we're called to do. Now we need to realize that God sovereignly uses means. Therefore, we are to do what we can realizing Realizing that in our obedience to Christ to protect and preserve, we know that, that God is at work to empower and to preserve faith. So being a pastor is not an anxiety-free role. In fact, I think that you could say it's an anxiety-ridden role. Not that there's, there's good anxiety and bad anxiety. You know, I mean, for Paul, he, he ultimately... I mean, he knew that he was responsible for the flock. And he earnestly desired to be a faithful shepherd. He knew that he would be judged harshly. And knew that he would have to give an account before God. That is not an easy thing. That should not cause us to be like, okay, I'm good. Trust in God. No. I mean, Paul prayed for them constantly. He cared for them deeply. He knew that ultimately their salvation was a gift and work of God, that that God has to give new life, that God is the one that perseveres faith, but he knows that God uses means and that he might be that means of imparting the gospel truth to them so that they might stand in the faith. And so he's willing to face discomfort. He's willing to embrace afflictions. He's willing to face fears because he wants to see them grow. So if we can simply shrug our shoulders when we hear about or, or just try to, try to play ignorant about what is happening in our congregation around us, shame on us. Honestly, I question the call to ministry if you can live life like that. And I fear the day that you'll have to give an account for your life. Now here Paul shows us that there is such a thing as godly fear in ministry. I can tell you firsthand, I understand this. Not that all my anxiety is godly, because there's a lot of it that's not. But, uh, yeah, you want to experience ulcers? Go plant a church. Let me tell you, it's insane. Um, The question is ultimately how we handle it. And so he prayed constantly, but that didn't mean that he didn't suffer discomfort or embrace additional hardship to make sure 
that, that he could display his deep affection for them. It was Paul's fear that led to a faithful sacrifice of his own well-being for their good and ultimately for his own joy. So, we've talked a lot about this text and what Paul meant, and we've kind of we started to make some application, but I don't want you guys to just kind of tune out and say, this has nothing to do with me. Because it has everything to do with you. It has everything to do with us. And so I want us to, to just think about that for a minute. How do we apply this? You know, I, I mean, what does that mean for a faithful pastor to endeavor and to sacrifice? Well, first, I pray that when you see me, or you see Jim, or you see Caleb, that you can look fondly at this text. That you can see us endeavoring. That you can see us sacrificing. That you can see us being faithful. I pray that when you see this text, you don't see Satan's devices, <laughs> you know, when you think of us. But that you can see this all the more, um, and, and you're fond of it. But I do ask that, that you pray for us. I have not arrived. I don't do this anywhere near perfectly. And I need your prayers so that I can more and more and more faithfully endeavor and faithfully sacrifice in such a way that it's pleasing to God. And I need your prayers to do that. I also know that there are a number of you here that are interested in, in, in the idea of pursuing ministry. Uh, we've had conversations. You know, you've come up and you've talked to me. And... Uh, in one way, at level or another, you're under examination. Whether you know it or not, you're under examination. <laughs> so, um, so I have to ask, does this describe you? When you look at this list of a faithful pastor endeavoring, I mean, what's your longing look like for the church? You know, uh, How are you standing against Satan's devices, not just for yourself, but helping others in the process? How are you pursuing your glory and your joy in Christ? How is it that you're sacrificing? Are you finding yourself willing to face discomfort? Are you, are you willing to embrace afflictions? Are you willingness to face your fears so that you might see God's, God's church grow? And are there some ways where you know that you're not doing it? Well, you're not sacrificing. You're not willing to face discomfort. You're not, you're not willing to embrace the hardships that might come along with that. If so, I, I pray that you give those up to God, that you let us know about it. So we can help, so we can encourage one another to love and good deeds, so that we might pursue this together. You know, if if God is is working in a in you a desire, you know, for the role of eldership, the role of ministry, that's a good thing. But what are you doing in the process to get you there? Ministry is not something that we do; it's something that we are. It doesn't just happen when you have a position. This, you know, you don't just pray a prayer and then one day God flips on a switch and suddenly you're endeavoring and sacrificing in a way that's pleasing to Him. It's a, it's a fight that you have to fight daily in conforming your, yourself to Christ. I mean, God works through that. But you've got to fight and, and question and, and seek out His will in all those situations. I mean, your time now is about preparation. And realize that if you're being faithful with little, God will make you faithful with much. But you need to be faithful with little, right? And then finally, we have to remember that the goal of ministry is that everyone walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. 
that everyone reach maturity in Christ. And that means that everyone serves as faithful pastors to one another. It's not just for the elite. It's not just for the few. It's not just for me or for Jim or for Caleb or, or for those who are, who are interested in pursuing ministry. It's for all of us. We all, to one degree or another, need to be endeavoring. We need to be sacrificing for the good of others, for the glory of God, for our joy and satisfaction and glory in Christ. We all need that. We all have a part to play in that. So by the grace of God, let us endeavor and sacrifice together for the cause of Christ. Let it not be just my glory and my joy. Or maybe Jim's glory and Jim's joy. Let it be our glory and our joy. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for this time we've had to share reflecting deeply on your word. God, I pray that your spirit might be at work in our hearts so that we might realize the joy the privilege, the responsibility that comes with receiving the gospel. God, we pray that we would have the desire to know Christ and to make Him known. God, I pray for us as as leaders in this church that we would be faithful to endeavor to sacrifice. God, I pray for those who are interested in in giving their lives for the cause of Christ. I commend that to them. I thank you that you have begun that work in their lives, but I pray that you open their eyes to some of the ways in which uh, they are not uh, giving themselves over to it and realize that there are no small things, that each moment of each day is a preparation for what you have in store for them, that our ultimate goal is to grow in Christ-likeness to be like Him. And whether that involves a, a, a ministry position or whether it doesn't, God, may we be faithful. And I pray for this church that we would embrace the call to endeavor and suffer for the sake of Christ. God, if He loved us so much, if He endeavored so much, if He sacrificed so much to bring us into a saving relationship with you so that we can now be called your children. Why would we not glory in our Father in the ways that he has? God, I pray that we would want that. I pray that your Spirit would do this work in us and that we would take responsibility to be faithful in every decision to bring glory to you, to seek the good of others, and to find our joy our soul satisfaction in Christ. It's in His name we pray. Amen.